trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Uh, we got a lot of great stuff to cover today. First thing I want to do, though, is thank my sponsors who make this program possible. They include LifesavingFood.com, also the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah, HSLMO.com, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, GovernYourIncome.com, and MonticelloCollege.org. I've got links to each one of them in my show notes, which you can access at TheBrianHydeShow.com. So, true confession. Today's my last official day of quarantine. Yeah, we, uh, we, my wife and I started feeling sick earlier this week and, you know, headache and body aches and, you know, stuffy head and the whole nine yards. And, uh, well, she went in and got tested early this week and sure enough, it came back positive for COVID. So we've been hunkered down with a little bit of time on our hands. Truth be told, I work from home, so I, you know, I hunkering down is kind of, well, it's kind of a way of life, and I really enjoy it. But we took the time to watch a movie that uh, I had read about a couple of weeks ago in a column by Jeffrey A. Tucker from the Brownstone Institute. It's a movie called Songbird. And the article is titled Songbird, the dystopian film that became real. Now, you know, this is, this is a movie, this is one of the first movies that was produced right after all the lockdown stuff was going on. It, I think it was produced in 2020, but uh, it was it was later in the year following, you know, all of the different, you know, pandemic, you know, fears and lockdown stuff. And I got to say, it's quite a show. And I think the most alarming thing about this show is the dystopian, you know, uh, virus obsessed world that it portrays is not that far from the one that we live in. I'm not saying that, oh yeah, we're totally in a dystopian society, but I am going to say you can see the world that film uh, portrays. You can see it from here. That's how close that kind of reaction and and bureaucratic unaccountability is. So I wanted to, to share Jeffrey Tucker's review of Songbird, and better still, encourage you to check it out for yourself. It's PG-13, I believe. It's uh, it's on Hulu, so it's pretty easy to find with a subscription, that is. But uh, anyway, Jeff- Jeffrey Tucker says, Watching Songbird, made in 2020, was a delight. Wait, wrong word. It was chilling, remarkable, stunning, revealing, and terrifying in strange ways. He says it features a dystopian society that is fully consumed by disease panic and controlled by a police state that claims to be fixing the problem. But the problem's not being fixed. Everything gets worse and worse. No one seems to know how to stop it because no one is actually responsible. Everyone's merely playing a role as civilization collapses. Now, this is not some wild vision of the future. He says it's a prescient crystallization of many aspects of the present. And he says, I can only congratulate the writers and directors and also praise any venue that allows it to be seen. In fact, he says, I'm surprised at some level, given the censorship of our times, that you and I are permitted to see it at all. 
but he says it's satisfying to know that at least one film made in the last two years dealt frankly with pandemic lockdowns and their social and economic implications. They mean the end of liberty, the end of human society as we've known it, and also the end of public health. Now, the truth is perfectly captured in the film, which is nightmarish, not because of an imagined future hell, but because so many people have lived some version of this movie in the last two years, and millions around the world continue to do so. Now, the contrast with Contagion, which was released in 2011, is striking. In that movie, in which everyone seems to have seen and actually acted out once the pathogen finally arrived, the CDC is responsible, it's benevolent, one of the few institutions in society that's not driven by panic. Their track and trace antics are wise, but sadly don't actually solve anything. Regardless, he says that movie helped mainstream the idea of lockdowns and suggests that it won't be so bad, at least not as bad as allowing a virus to circulate in the normal operations of the market and society. Well, Songbird gives an entirely different look at the same theme, and a much more realistic one, even though this is supposed to be some kind of dystopian fiction. Jeffrey Tucker writes, This was the first Hollywood production following the lockdowns of March 2020. In April, writer and director Adam Mason got a call from Simon Boyes with an idea to capture the present moment in film and imagine imagine a future in which the ethos and policies of lockdown drive the whole of life. The virus is a mutation of COVID-19 four years later, now called COVID-23. The lockdowns are more intense than ever. Now, one irony about filming in the summer and fall of 2020 is captured by Wikipedia. The production adhered to safety protocols, including regular testing, a maximum crew size of 40 per day, and keeping actors separated. Ah, yes, science. So, yeah, there's a sense which, in which the making of the film itself was subjected to the very same brutality of human separation that the film reveals as a police state nightmare. Now, perhaps that helps explain the intensity of the film itself. It's about the world in which the film was actually being made. And you really get a sense of this. I mean, this is not, hey, let's scare ourselves. You know, let's watch The Exorcist. We'll get chills. This one is scary, like I say, because you you actually recognize, oh, that's, that's a lot of what's going on now. Now, we're not there yet. We're not totally in dystopia, but like I said, you can see it from here. Jeffrey Tucker says, This movie should hold a high place in cinematic history as the first call-out of the sheer inhumanity of those months and presently foresee what a possible future could look like. See, it didn't appear in streaming until December of 2020, and the reviews, well, they're absolutely brutal, at least as they stand right now. In fact, he has a link to Rotten Tomatoes. The film was criticized as pure exploitation, unrealistic, disjointed, tedious. But he says none of that is correct. (laughs) In fact, it is all wildly incorrect. But he says, I suspect I know why the movie didn't capture the moment when it came out. Trump had been defeated in the election. Half the country was already back to normal, particularly red states. And there was a presumption in the air that all our troubles were about to be over because we were getting a new president who would magically deploy the power of science to make everything better. But he says, for reasons I'll never fully understand, there was a pro-lockdown ethos in all fashionable circles of art, film, music, and media generally. Jeffrey Tucker says, my speculation is that this was due, number one, to the perception that Trump himself turned against lockdowns and therefore to be pro-lockdown was to signal anti-Trumpism. Number two, 
the lockdowns were not entirely inconvenient for the well-to-do. And number three, the influence of the Chinese market here might have tipped the scales. But whatever the reason, the traditional pro-speech, pro-liberty, pro-inclusionist ideology of Hollywood and media culture were thrown out the window after lockdowns and replaced by a creeping adoration for central planning and authoritarianism as the means by which society defeats germs. This film took an entirely different view, in other words, a more traditional view, and hence it had to be crushed before it gained adherence for the anti-lockdown cause. Now, the main themes of this movie center on two pillars of lockdown ideology, social distancing and track and trace, and both of them are shown as applied in the extreme. In fact, there are only a few scenes in the entire film in which actual people are in contact with other actual people outside of their own household. Virtually everybody is under house arrest, told, do not leave your home, you'll be shot on sight. All communication outside the household is via digital services. Groceries are delivered via a box in the wall with UV lights designed to disinfect anything incoming. And this is the craziest part, and he nails this. The police state in the movie seems to be on autopilot. It just grinds along with a failed orthodoxy that no one seems in a position to stop. There's no legislature, no president that we ever see, not even a public health authority as such. It's a police state in which the sanitation department seems to have all control and no one's in a position to check that power. And the result is chilling. It's not a world in which anyone wants to live. Everyone in lockdown is struggling with physical and mental health, the corruption, the universal sadness, the class divisions, the isolation and despair, the digital monitoring of everything and everybody, all in the name of disease control, is captured in a way that is uncomfortably familiar. So he says, in, in, in closing, Jeffrey Tucker says, The movie Songbird now looms large in my head, and that's uh, what precisely is the difference between what this film shows as ghastly dystopia and what Dr. Fauci himself has been pushing in the U.S. Senate. He says, I'm not sure that I see much difference at all. But the bottom line is this. You're not supposed to see this movie. So that's probably the best reason to see it now. So I'm not telling you to go sign up for a Hulu subscription, but it's a pretty decent movie. I think you would find some interesting parallels and maybe learn a thing or two in the process. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Very happy to welcome my friend, Dr. Shannon Brooks, who is the founder of Monticello College, back to the program. They're also one of our sponsors. I should probably throw that in there, too. Shannon, great to have you on the program. Hey, thanks, Brian. Appreciate it. So you've been a busy guy here lately, and I want to bring my audience up to speed on some of the things that you have been doing, as well as some of the things that you are, uh, as they would say in the South, fixing to do. Um, talk to me about the new economy. I know this is something that you have been working on, and, and you actually have a, have a, a book or a PDF that uh, will, be, will be published soon that seems extremely relevant to the times we live in. Yeah, um, we, we have been working on for some time trying to figure out a solution to to the problem that that college graduates are facing. And that is one, 
Uh, they have so much debt when they graduate. It, you know, it could be as much as $75,000 or $100,000 when they graduate. If you're a graduate student, way more than that. Um, so, that, so a major issue is, one, graduating with all this debt, and two, difficulty in finding a job. And, and then this, this, this ongoing COVID scenario, uh, the whole employment thing is really weird. And you've got people crying for, for employees, for jobs, but, but not finding these college graduates actually qualified for those jobs. And so it's just, just a real confusing scenario. So how to solve those two problems? And we think that we've come up with a solution. Now, this is a solution you're actually going to be taking on the road here in the very near future. That's one of the reasons I have you on the show today, to make sure that anybody within my listening audience who's going to be close to where you'll be speaking has the opportunity to come and, and hear about this message. So let's let's touch on this early on. We'll, we'll then talk a little bit more about the new economy. But where are some of the places and times and dates that uh, you're going to be presenting this message? Sure. Uh, yeah, we're planning uh, to do a tour in the second week of February. Um, February 8th, we plan to be in St. George. Uh, February 9th in Cedar City. Uh, the 10th will be in Spanish Fork. Uh, the 11th will be um, in two locations, one in Roy, and uh, and then later that evening, one in Layton. And then uh, February 12th, we'll be in Manti. Okay, so you're going to be getting uh, you're going to be getting some good travel in. Um, Talk to me about the message that you're going to be taking to these audiences. Sure. So um, we, we call it the new economy because what, what, we're, what we're talking about is a way to approach um, providing for a family, having a home, uh, a, a employment or, or a business, but to do it differently than we've been doing it. And to do that, we kind of have to lay out the case that the current economy is the problem. You know, often you think about the idea of, you know, you've got a tough problem, you, got, you have to think outside the box. Well, we're suggesting get rid of the box. And the box is the crummy, crummy, crummy economy that we're in now. And so I, I take some time and I walk through explaining exactly where we are in terms of what we call national debt and then unfunded obligations, which was, it's kind of an unspoken concept that almost no one's heard of. But uh, between those two, we are in big trouble economically. We're starting to see it with, with the monthly increasing in inflation, um, all these different things. And it impacts you know, every aspect of, of our life. Uh, the, the economy impacts uh, you know, the kind of job you have, how much money you got in your pocket, your, the kind of house you have, the car you drive, the phone you have, the quality of food. I mean, just everything is impacted by the economy. But we almost never talk about the economy on a day-to-day basis. And so... Uh, we walk, we go through, we show them uh, where we are financially as a nation. Um, we talk about GDP compared to debt, and we kind of set the stage of, wow, we're, we're in this very, very unhappy place. Um, what can we do about it, especially for new college graduates? Yeah, no, I'm I'm with you. There, there's something about the sense that uh, the, the economy, the debt-based economy right now, well, it's been taken on water for a while, but it appears to be making gurgling sounds and getting ready to sink. And yet most people, whether they believe it or not, are tied to that economy. And no matter how they try to be self-sufficient, as long as they remain tied to that economy, they're going to be limited in, in terms of their options, right? Right, right. Exactly. In fact, um, um, uh, Nassim Taleb in 2012, he wrote a book called um, Anti-Fragile. 
And the concept of anti-fragile is when you have challenges in your life, um, rather than, you know, try to pretend like they're not there or run away from them, you turn, you take them on, you embrace them. Uh, sometimes you can overcome them. Sometimes you have to insulate yourself from the effects of those challenges. It's kind of like, Brian, that the, the, the farmer who, know there's, who knows there's a drought cycle, right? And so he can ignore the fact there's a drought cycle, or he can say, hey, the government will bail me out when, there's, when the drought actually happens. Or he can, for the you know, seven or 10 years of plenty, he can hold some aside each year and start filling up those silos. So when the drought does come, he's got seed, he's got food, he's ready to go, he can make it through the drought period, no problem. And then he's back into the years of plenty again. That's called being anti-fragile, and we are anything but anti-fragile today. And what we're, what we're trying to accomplish with these students and, and, and with this lecture cycle is to show folks there is a way to be anti-fragile today, but it's going to be uh, a bit of a change from how we're doing things right now. And that's, that's going to be the tough sell. I've, look, I've, I've read what you've written on the new economy. I think you're right on the money. But I also acknowledge um, for a lot of people, the idea of but things are going to have to be different. I mean, we love our comfort. We love our convenience. Um, you know, I'm hoping there are enough people with the courage, Shannon, to, to make that decision before they have no other choice but to adapt to, you know, whatever reality is coming. But uh, I, I wonder if we're so comfortable, that might be a tough choice for a lot of people. Well, you know, and, and in fact, because it's such a tough choice for already established families, I'm almost exclusively working. And now that's what we're what we're suggesting Brian can can be done by anyone okay but the the older you are the the farther down this road of debt that you're in it, it it's tough so I'm kind of focusing um, uh, our efforts with those who haven't got themselves into this mess yet and that's the college age student that those who just graduated or, or before they even go to college so they don't get all this college debt in place we're trying to work with those we're offering the solution to the world but but we understand that for the most part, what you're saying is true. And, and, you know, the older generations are not going to be too excited about, <laughs> about what this has to offer, but the young people are, they're very excited. They see hope in this opportunity. And so um, they're, they're gobbling it up right now. And um, we have a few that are actually engaged in it right now and, and very happy with their results and what they hope to have in the future. So this isn't just theoretical. You're actually seeing it applied right now oh yes yes okay let's let's hit the uh, dates times and places again where you are going to be speaking um and i will have a link in the show notes that will help point people towards these but where are you going to be speaking throughout the state of utah yes so february 8th is in st george and that's tentative we're still working on that uh cedar city is for sure um i i don't have the updated information but it's going to be an evening event in cedar city and well i'll I'll get you that new address or that updated address spanish fork will be seven o'clock on february the 10th um uh february the 11th is uh in the morning in roy utah and then in the evening in layton utah and then february 12th is in uh, Manti, and that's going to be that's a Saturday, and that's a that's an early afternoon event. 
Okay, so this, the fact that I have you on today, this is kind of an early warning for my listeners. So, uh, listener, here's your chance to at least start clearing your calendar. I'm going to have you back on, though, Shannon, because I, I want to make sure that people know about this with plenty of time to get out there and hear what you have to say. And then, then they can choose for themselves. You know, is this something that, that I might embrace? Or maybe my kids or my grandkids. This is what they need to hear. Um, tell me about the website for your college. You've got about 30 seconds here. MonticelloCollege.org. That's the website, yep. Okay, and there's a lot of great material on that website, uh, lots of uh, lots of visual as well as written things to help explain the, the mission behind this school. I mean, it's this is an education for our time. It really is. And uh, Dr. Shannon Brooks, thank you so much for joining me on the program today. Brian, my pleasure. All right, we'll talk again soon. We'll be back right after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, thanks so much for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. This isn't about me telling you what to think. I'm not smart enough to run your life. I'm barely smart enough to run my own life, if that. But I am here to encourage you, please think deeply, think clearly, think as independently as you can about every bit of information that uh, comes into your awareness. It's important. There's a lot of deception going on. And I I, I want to also give a quick shout out here to one of my sponsors, that being lifesavingfood.com. There's something to be said for self-reliance and for the uh, strength of conviction that a person can gain when they know, absolutely know, that they're in a position to take care of themselves and their loved ones. Now, I'm specifically relating this to preparedness, to food storage, and that sort of stuff. Look, the, the supplies are still good. Costs are going up. There's just no avoiding that. Inflation is, is running pretty crazy right now. But there is still plenty of time to stock up on the food storage that you need. You still get a 20% discount through lifesavingfood.com. Free shipping, no sales tax, Okay, I've tried to make it as attractive as possible. There's a link in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Click on it and get that peace of mind. You know, it's crazy how things that were getting people, you know, deplatformed, smeared, criticized, banned from social media are finally being acknowledged as truth. Here's a case in point. The CDC now admits natural immunity offered stronger protection than the vaccine did against the Delta variant. This has been kind of an interesting thing that I've been watching play out over the last week. Um, you know, my, my wife tested positive for COVID earlier in the week, and uh, she's vaxxed. I'm not. Now, both of us clearly had it. My case has been very, very mild, and I'm, I'm knock on wood when I say this, but um, it's it's really been no big deal. I had one day that was pretty miserable with body aches and fever, and, you know, after that... Uh, you know, everything started improving. Hers has hung on a little bit more. And I don't, you know, am I blaming the vaccine? I don't know. I'm just pointing out she has struggled with it more than I have. And, and she is vaccinated. But uh, isn't that something that the CDC is now actually saying? Well, yeah, the natural immunity has actually offered stronger protection against COVID than other vac- than vaccines did. Now, this is particularly true during the Delta wave that they're talking about. John Miltimore, in an article for the Foundation for Economic Education, Notes on Wednesday of this week, U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention provided new research showing 
During the recent Delta wave, individuals who had previously contracted COVID-19 had more protection against the virus than those who had been vaccinated. CDC epidemiologist Benjamin Silk told the Wall Street Journal, before the Delta variant, COVID-19 vaccination resulted in better protection against a subsequent infection than surviving a previous infection. But when looking at the summer and fall of 2021, he said, when Delta became predominant in this country, however, surviving a previous infection now provided greater protection. End quote. Now, John Miltimore writes, both vaccinated individuals and those who had recovered from the virus showed significant defense, according to these scientists. Now, the CDC released its findings to reporters, but its research was at least not yet available online as of uh, Thursday morning. Previous research suggests receiving vaccination after a COVID infection can offer additional protection against the virus. For instance, the Mayo Clinic says recent research suggests that people who got COVID-19 in 2020 and then received mRNA vaccines produce very high levels of antibodies that are likely effective against current and possibly future variants. Some scientists call this hybrid immunity. Now, these findings are significant, and they dovetail with recent scientific research out of Israel that showed previous infection from COVID-19 conferred longer-lasting, more robust protection than vaccines against the Delta variant. Following the Israel study, prominent scientists argued that the fact that natural immunity offered more protection than vaccines made mandatory vaccination unscientific and unethical. Huh, you think? For instance, uh, Harvard Medical School professor Martin Koldorf, an epidemiologist and biostatistician, says prior COVID disease, many working class, provides better immunity than vaccines, many professionals. So vaccine mandates are not only scientific nonsense, they're also discriminatory and unethical. Now, John Miltimore goes on to say the CDC's findings were released days after the Supreme Court ruled that Joe Biden's vaccinate or test requirement for businesses with more than 100 employees was unconstitutional. The high court's decision prompted some businesses, including Starbucks, to scrap their vaccine mandates for employees. We respect the court's rulings and will comply, John Culver, COO and group president for North America at Starbucks, told employees on Tuesday. Now, despite the protection offered by previous COVID infection, Many public officials in countries have been um, reluctant to recognize national immunity. Novak Djokovic, the uh, world's top-ranked tennis player, recently had his visa seized by Australian authorities when he arrived unvaccinated to play in the Australian Open, even though he was initially granted a medical exemption because of a recent COVID infection. Meanwhile, Austria's conservative government recently announced it will make vaccination compulsory for adults who will face steep fines up to 3,600 euros if they fail to comply. That's even if they already had the virus. By the way, in kind of an interesting twist of fate, uh, Djokovic's uh, um, tennis playing days, you know, I mean, he may be limited. He Look, this guy obviously is, is popular enough. I'm sure he could have got a doctor to, to fake, you know, a vaccine card for him, but he didn't. And the crazy thing now is they have refunded more money than they've actually taken in from ticket sales in the Australian Open. Whoops! Oh, no! I wonder if that's one of the same reasons that Adele was uh, weeping about how, you know, well, I'm not going to be able to launch my Las Vegas show because, because of COVID and all the disruptions and so forth. Well, maybe if you didn't try to ban people who aren't fully vaccinated, 
you'd have enough ticket sales. I guess they'll just have to find something else to entertain themselves when they're in Vegas. Good luck with that, right? Oh, and there was also, in the, in the tennis uh, arena, five of the people who were participating in the, uh, the, the Australian Open have had to drop out because of chest pains. Yes, they're fully vaccinated, but there's absolutely no connection to, you know, their vaccinations and the uh, chest pains. And whew. Did I mention we're living in a dystopian world? Okay, just, just well, moving on. John Miltimore says, in the United States, universities have been inclined to expel students not considered fully vaccinated, which in some cases reportedly includes students who've had multiple vaccine shots, have previously had COVID, and have received a medical exemption from a physician. Recent evidence, however, suggests the reluctance to treat individuals who've had COVID as fully vaccinated may be waning. So, for example, the NCAA recently announced in its winter guidelines that athletes who previously had COVID will be considered fully vaccinated if the infection took place within three months. The CDC's announcement that previous infection offered more protection than vaccination against the Delta variant is likely to fuel calls to end vaccine mandates, particularly for individuals who've already been infected. And there are several related articles as well as hyperlinks throughout John Miltimore's article. Well worth your time. Go to my show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. In fact, subscribe if you haven't already. I'll send them to your inbox every morning when I publish my notes. But there's a lot of great information here. How much you want to follow, that's up to you. I mean, for some people, they're going to latch onto this like a pit bull and, you know, they'll follow every possible thread. I want to go back here for a moment, too, to uh, Austria. You know, they're talking about, well, we may find people up to 3,600 euros if they don't get their vaccination. 600 police officers yesterday petitioned the Austrian government. Don't do this. Okay, these are the guys who are, you know, going to be out there enforcing these kind of things. And at least 600 police officers in Austria are saying, my conscience is not feeling good about this. I don't know what's going on in Germany, but Germany, you know, they seem, I don't know if if their police have just managed to flip the off switch on their conscience, but you literally have cops walking through crowds with six foot long sticks measuring between people. You know, are you properly distanced? You know, it's, (laughs) it's, it's surreal. But isn't this something? All this time, I mean, people have been saying for the last couple of years, natural immunity has a role to play in this crisis. And yet it's not something that's ever talked about. Even when when Dr. Fauci goes before Congress, even when Rand Paul is grilling him, Fauci doesn't want to talk about natural immunity. They're just that, get the vaccine, get the vaccine. Please understand, I'm not saying that uh, nobody should ever get the vaccine. For some people, it will make sense. If you are in a high-risk category, this may actually be something you want to do. But it should be something you decide. It's not something that should be mandated. It should not be compulsory. And it absolutely should not be forced on people who don't fit those high-risk categories or who, for whatever reason, do not give their consent to participate in this particular medical procedure. So, look, if if you have held out... If you have made it through with intact DNA to this point, if you're still clinging to reality, I just want to give you some reassurance. You, my friend, are a survivor. You've done well. Hang in there. <laughs> it's, it's not easy, but, but you're doing the right thing. 
and keep doing that research for yourself. Be your own fact checker. You can trust your decisions. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Very happy to welcome my friend, my former neighbor, Keith Kelsch. He's a thinker. He's a doer. And uh, Keith, you and I have some exciting stuff to talk about in this segment. There's been a lot of crazy stuff going on over the last couple of years, but shaking things up also has the product. This is the the positive thing of, of forcing people to think outside the box, to innovate. And you've always been kind of an innovator. What have you got up your sleeve? What have you been working on? Uh, you know me, Brian. I've been trying to figure out a way to make a community more efficient, make community better, make community back to what culture is. And um, my daughter just walked in the door. Sorry. <laughs> um, I, I wrote a book called The High Road, The Future of American Greatness. It was published at the end of last year. And it has a lot of the ideas that, that we're actually implementing. But I started this idea about seven years ago. And it was the business networking organization that's a little different than what you kind of know or understand. It goes way back to Benjamin Franklin, and he started a Junto group. He called it a business networking organization, but it's called the Junto group. And uh, they actually created the first one of the first post offices, one of the first firehouses. I even founded universities. They created a library, and uh, they actually leased books out, let people come and read the books they collected, and met every Friday night and talked about morals and politics and how to make community a better place. And it was a real free-flowing means of, of communication. It was pretty powerful. And then, of course, I researched the Iroquois Five-Nation Confederacy and how they organized. And they all organized without a single executive head. That's what's so amazing. You go back to the Charter of Liberties. You go back to the Magna Carta. You go back to the Declaration of Independence, even the French Tennis Court Oath. All of these are the pinnacle of, of liberty and freedom in the world, and none of them were created with a king. None of them were created with an executive, and none of them were created with a president. And we seem to forget that, that model. And so when you start thinking about cultures of consent and how people get together, it's actually very, very effective to get together without a single person commanding and controlling that whole model. Wow. And so we launched... We launched Local Commonwealth, which is uh, a business networking and outreach organization, plus, plus, plus. There's a plus at the end of our logo because we have the vision to become so much more than what we are. And we have a free event. It's uh, next Thursday, the January 27th, at the Electric Theater in downtown St. George. You need to go to localcommonwealth.com, localcommonwealth.com, and register. Each individual person needs to register individually and it's a free event there'll be a grab bag there's going to be entertainment there's going to be some incredible speakers talking about a new enlightenment which is basically a renaissance or what i would call a second american founding but it's bottom up it's just people coming together in their communities helping their businesses grow in wealth helping the organization grow in wealth so we can actually accomplish 
things in our community. You know, you mentioned the word consent, and that just resonates with me so much. Uh, I just was reading something the other day from a writer named Max Borders, and he pointed out that there are three relationships that organizations and individuals can have. One is the subject relationship in which it's predicated upon your obedience. You're a subject. You do what you're told. The second one is the one that most of us have grown up under, and that is as a citizen, where you have the appearance of consent. I mean, we vote, you know, we, we participate in the civic process, but at the end of it, once the voting's done, you're expected to, to be obedient. The third one is the, the customer relationship in which your consent is, is king. And so when you talk about consent, I mean, that speaks to me in a way that uh, that I, I wish the others could. But um, talk to me about uh, where you saw the, this need arising. What was it that told you that, you know, we, we've got to shake things up from the way that we've been doing them, that, that we seem to be stuck in continuing doing? Well, let me rock your, role, your world a little bit with regard to that concept of three. That's basically the trinity you're talking about in a, in a really unique way. But it really boils down to three concepts. Each individual person has three unique things about them. You have a voice which happens to be your intellect your experience, your education, your wisdom, your vision, your dreams, all that you hope for inside your mind and inside your soul. That's your voice, all the unique perspectives you have, okay? Then you have a vote, which is nothing more than your John Hancock. That is your consent. That's your will to say yes and no. That's all a vote is. It's not your voice, and your voice is not your vote. All right, the third thing you have is your value. That's your blood, sweat, and tears. That's what you create. That's your genuine liberty. Liberty is pure creation. That's what liberty is. It's not a stagnant thing you have with inside your soul. It's an actual predicate that you're acting upon. Okay? Now, if you're the devil which and you wanted control of the world, which one would you go after first? Mm, actually, I'd, I'd go after all of them. But uh, what, what do you think? What is the highest priority to, to stop? He wants, yeah. he wants your value for sure. He mm-hmm. wants to control that. But he can't get that right away, so he's going to go after your voice. He doesn't care about your vote. Because if he can manipulate your voice, he's going to get your vote. And he's also going to wow. get your value. Wow. So, so when you start thinking about human organization, you have to preserve all three qualities inside every individual before you even start to scale as a community or even as a family. And so that's what we've done in our, in our organization. Everything we do, every meeting that we conduct, everything that we, we come together as a group, we are protecting your voice, your vote, and your value. And that's why we call it the Voice, Vote, and Value Summit, a renaissance in community. And, it, and we're having it next Thursday at the Electric Theater. You have to go to localcommonwealth.com to join. And we can have household-wise, we can have businessmen, business owners, entrepreneurs, uh, it's all a matter of coming together and pitching in. We have visions for housing that would be just are just phenomenal. What we want to do to l- literally stop blighted neighbors neighborhoods in our community. Uh, what we can do together is far more powerful than what we can do alone. We just have lost sight of how we do it and the mechanics and how we organize. Tell me about the speakers that the people will hear at this uh, Voice, Vote, and Value Summit. That's what's unique. They're just regular people. When we first went after this to kind of create this, when we went after big names in the community, and it was really kind of pulling teeth because uh, they can, didn't quite see the vision. 
so we just had people in our community. <laughs> we have a, a wonderful lady. Her name's Robin Sanderson, and she's a, a mother, a grandmother. She helps her husband run his business. Just phenomenal, sweet lady. She's going to be our first speaker talking about Let's Not Give Up Hope. And then we've got J.R. Martin. He's the founder and creator of Alive and Well, which is really very similar to the model we have with Local Commonwealth. And then I will be the anchor just for like 10 minutes talking about the real depth of voice, vote, and value, and why those are so important, and why we need to bring them back together again. It's like, you know, they're one. If, if they're not one, and if you, for example, if you're in a room, and everyone's talking about what the decision's going to be, but you're not in that room to share your, your, your voice, then your vote is uninformed, or the people that are making the vote are uninformed. People, we go into cubicles, and we go and vote, but that person can't be challenged, and I can't be challenged on their vote. So we're completely uninformed as a, as a population. All the visions, all the hope, all the things that exist out there, all the responsibility that could be back in our hands, it's, it's lost because we're voting with an uninformed um, intent. Okay, so this is a free event, but you do want people to pre-register, correct? Yes, they need to go to localcommonwealth.com just as it, as it sounds, and you'll see the banner right there, and uh, just go and register. We, it's a free event. We have a limited number of seats, of 300 seats, and they're going fast. So if you want to see the vision for what we can do locally, and it's, it's non-political, we're not going to rally the troops to go and march on, on Washington. <laughs> I've been there. I was there on January 6th. And that's not the way to go because it, it gets turned around. We just need to come together and help each other out locally. It's, it's the scalability of love is what we're trying to go after. <laughs> well, I, I think the timing is, is very, very good. People are, are, are already, you know, thinking outside the box that they've been comfortable in for a long time. So, so this may be a great time for them to hear these ideas. Keith, I want to have you back on the show next week prior to this, if we can, can have you on for a segment, because I want people to know. Hopefully, you know, you're going to tell me, well, Brian, sorry, all, all 300 seats are gone. But uh, I will provide a link in the show notes, and, and I wish you the very best. I know you've been anxiously engaged in this for years, so I, I hope to yeah. see this bear some fruit, because... Lord knows you've been you've been working at this for a long time. Yeah, we, we hope for it. It's it's magical how it's coming together now. All right. I'm I'm gonna have a link in the show notes again. It's uh, localcommonwealth.com. That's where you want to go. Keith, I'm looking forward to talking with you again. Actually, even if you sell it out, I still want you to come on the show next week and, and talk about this because I want to make sure people know that uh, there's something going on they could be a part of. Thanks again for being um, on the, on my program. Thanks, Brian. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Every day, I have the honor, the privilege 
of sitting behind this microphone, delivering precision-guided truth bombs to those who are looking for such things and also carefully disarming dangerous myths intended to separate you from your freedom. I wouldn't say it's exactly thankless work because actually I get to hear from a lot of people (laughs) throughout the week. I do appreciate the words of encouragement. I appreciate the support of those who subscribe and, and get my show notes. And I especially appreciate the sponsors who make this show possible including MonticelloCollege.org, GovernYourIncome.com, Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah, HSLAmmo.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, and LifesavingFood.com. Well, you know, anytime someone talks about being on the right side of history, your eyes should narrow, and you should listen very closely to what they're saying. I've got a great article here from Frank Ferretti, and this is from uh, bikedonline.com about how there is no right side of history. In fact, too often, people who talk about, well, now you want to be on the right side of history, they're just trying to shut down debate. So Frank Ferretti, writing from the UK, says, in England, it seems you can get away with destroying a public statue if you claim you're on the right side of history. This was the surmise of Liam Walker, QC, who urged a jury to be on the right side of history by acquitting four defendants accused of criminal damage after they toppled the statue of slave trader Edward Colston. Walker's invitation was accepted by the jury, which acquitted the defendants. Now, Frank Ferretti says this shouldn't be a surprise. Today, our political and cultural elites frequently tell us to be on the right side of history. For example, last week, U.S. President Joe Biden told Senate Democrats to get on the right side of history and support his voting rights reforms. Now, the implication is that to not support his policy is to be on the wrong and therefore backward and bigoted side of history. In making such an appeal to the authority of history... Biden was following in the tradition of his Democratic predecessors, Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, who both frequently used the same rhetorical strategy. In fact, Clinton alone referred to the right side of history 21 times during his time in office. Now, actual history, however, has a tendency to make a mockery of those claiming to be on its right side. Frank Ferretti says one of the first uses of the phrase I encountered was in Harold Lasky's Reflections on the Revolutions of Our Time, published in 1943. The pro-Soviet Lasky said the Soviet Union was certainly on the right side of history. Now, number one, given the grim reality of the Soviet Union, Union, rather, Lasky's misplaced faith shows the trajectory of history cannot be second-guessed. Now, today, it appeal, it, appealing to the authority of history is just a way of putting a view or policy beyond question. Right? It works by inhibiting and depoliticizing debate. After all, who wants to be on the wrong side of history? But he says it means that one does not have to explain why a particular policy or act is morally righteous because history, in quotation marks, has already judged it so. So, in 2019, when New Zealand's Prime Minister, Hacinda Ardern, Ardern rather, said her climate change legislation put New Zealand on the right side of history, She conveyed an unspoken warning to her opponents. They not only face the judgment of the electorate if they criticize her policy, they also face the wrath of history. Now, this amounts to a form of guilt-tripping. And he explains, in reality, history does not take sides. It does not work according to a plan or reward or punish those who regard or disregard its message. History, rather, is what people make of it. 
and because it's a product of human action and interaction, it is open-ended. People may only rarely be able to anticipate the consequences of their actions, but they can still influence and even change the course of events. Now, those who claim to be standing on the right side of history reject this view of human agency. Instead, they effectively endorse the fatalistic belief that the future is foretold. One of the most memorable examples of this view was provided by Nikita Khrushchev, the former leader of the Soviet Union. In a self-consciously provocative speech delivered in November 1956, he warned that whether you like it or not, history is on our side, before telling the Western world, we will bury you. As the collapse of the Soviet Union illustrated, predictions of who's on the right side of history tend to be wildly misguided. Now, the popularity of this phrase among political figures is a recent phenomenon. A search of the LexisNexis newspaper database reveals only one reference to the phrase during the 1970s, when the Reverend Jesse Jackson called on American businesses to stop trading with South Africa and choose to be on the right side of history. And there are only 120 references to it between 1980 and 1990. It's in the 90s that the right side of history references really started taking off. And Frank Ferretti says, Today, appeals to the authority of history have acquired a quasi-religious character. Those who claim to be on the right side of history are almost a caricature of the Calvinist idea of the elect, that is, those chosen by God to be saved. However, today's secular elect consists of those who have adopted a woke ethos and mode of behavior. How do we ensure we're on the right side of history, asks one anxious commentator. Well, luckily she doesn't have to look far for answers. There's now a veritable army of race trainers and gender experts on hand willing to show people like her what views they need to hold in order to be on the right side of history. In many institutions, rejecting their help is not an option. That's because behind these appeals to the authority of history, there lurks the totalitarian rhetoric of, you are either with us or against us. That's a great point. Now, as it happens... Those who claim to be on the right side of history are largely indifferent to the legacy of the past. They're neither interested in history nor in any lessons that can legitimately be drawn from it. Those who genuinely wish to participate in the unfolding of history must not be blinded by dogma. They must instead be ready to search for the truth. History provides no guarantees, and that's why we need the freedom to exercise our own judgment through public debate. So Frank Ferretti says, forget trying to be on the right side of history and get on with making it. Now, this brings up kind of an interesting conundrum, and it's probably something you and I have individually faced ourselves. How can you know what history or what historical accounts to trust? I'm so grateful for the time that I got to spend in the company of the great uh, Stephen Pratt. Stephen passed away, oh my goodness, it's, it's been almost 10 years since he passed away, but His Know Your Liberty lectures were some of the most instructive time that I spent uh, sharpening my own understanding of history. And and Stephen was was not one of these guys who, you will listen to every word I say and believe everything. He was a huge stickler for, you need to go and research this for yourself. You need to do your own homework. That's the heuristic approach to learning. But he never asked anybody, take my word for it. One thing he pointed out that has always stuck with me is that, uh, you know, you've heard, you've heard the maxim, the victors write the history books. It's true. 
And if you look at the history books that were written according to, you know, if you look at the, the, the way history was taught at a specific time in, in American history, go back 100 years, for instance, versus the way that it's taught today, you're going to see that there's a very noticeable slant, and that's there deliberately. The court historians make sure that whoever is in power at the moment is very favorably reflected, or the recounting of history favors the idea that, yes, and it's right, and therefore it is proper that we should be the ones in charge, and thus it should always be so. Now, look, it's human nature, so I'm not trying to ascribe some, you know, mega evil kind of, you know, motives to what they, they've done here. But some of the best advice that Stephen Pratt gave me and anyone else who attended his lectures was if you really want to get a sense of what were people thinking You've got to read books from the specific time period and letters and correspondence from the time period that you are studying. And keep in mind, they had their blind spots. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind, Aristotle was an absolutely amazing thinker and contributed greatly to the understanding of all of humanity. He also was a guy who believed, you know what, slavery is a natural thing. There are some people who are born to serve and there are people who are born to be served. And we need those who serve so that the rest of us who, you know, are supposed to be served can can think and do things, you know, that don't require using our hands and our backs. Smart guy, but a pretty big blind spot. And, of course, that means you and I probably have blind spots as well. So we need a little bit of humility and we need to be be sure that we're, we're not too full of ourselves, you know, our chronological snobbery because everybody knows nobody's ever been smarter or better or better dressed or had cooler haircuts than we do. I guess this is a, this is a roundabout way of saying don't judge people who came before you too harshly. Chances are they were doing the best they could in the circumstances they were born into. And someone, someday, is going to be looking at you and making similar judgments. How kind would you want them to be to your blind spots and my blind spots? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Got to send some love out here to the Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah. This would be Teresa and Eric Alsop. They are the current owners of this wonderful business established back in 1984. And if you are into sewing at any level, even if you're just sewing curious, you know, you just want to see what it's all about. First of all, it's a very viable pastime and hobby. And the people who do it, do it very well, and they take it quite seriously. You, would, you wouldn't believe the tools that are available, whether it's sewing machines, sergers, long-arm quilting, and so forth. It's all there in one place. And something I really like about Sewing and Quilting Center is when you buy a machine from them, you not only get the machine, but you also get classes on how to use that machine. And those classes never expire. Every machine comes with free classes on how to use it. You could... Come back and take the class again if you forget or if you just want to refresh your course. They service what they sell. I mean, you could be set for a long time if you purchase your sewing and quilting and embroidery machines through SewingQuiltingCenter.com. And they also have classes to teach you how to make the most of those machines. And and they have the fabric and the threads and everything you need. 
reach out to them and tell them thanks for being a sponsor of this show. They'll appreciate hearing from you, and I will definitely appreciate you uh, making the case that uh, their message is reaching your ears. So when people in power do genuinely destructive things with their power, we have a prime opportunity to learn from their mistakes. And now we also have a duty that goes along with that to ensure that the people who made those kind of mistakes are not allowed to wield such power ever again. Got a great article here from J.B. Shirk, published on uh, AmericanThinker.com. After COVID, never again. He says, two years ago, how many people would have predicted that tennis's number one ranked player would be banned from competing in Australia and France for refusing to allow their governments to decide what's injected into his body? How many people would have predicted the construction of internment camps to house citizens who similarly refused to comply? How many would have predicted that national leaders of democratic countries, democratic in quotation marks, would demand censorship of dissenting points of view? How many would have predicted that tech and media companies would eagerly jump at those calls for censorship by actively deleting from the public square any voices contrary to the official narratives sanctioned by those in power? Now, he's not just pulling examples out of thin air. He actually links to examples of everything he's just mentioned. Well, J.B. Shirk says, whatever threat to human health the the China virus poses, it has been dwarfed by the threats to peace, stability, and freedom caused by two years of government tyranny run amok. For people who either never experienced the authoritarianism practiced by dictatorships abroad or who stubbornly believed that the leaders of free nations would somehow be immune to the corrupting influence of power, these two years have hopefully been a wake-up call. And he says, if and when we ever get on the other side of this COVID-1984 war against citizens, never again must take on a new additional meaning that includes people's resolute promise never to allow their governments to embrace totalitarianism in the names of health and security. He says, take this shameful moment in the history of nation states once committed to liberty and use it to advantage by teaching your children and your grandchildren how quickly freedom can be smothered by politicians and bureaucrats with the best of intentions. Now, J.B. Shirk says all of this leads to a damning question. Why have so few people with power stood up during these past two years to call out this COVID-1984 madness for what it is? The greatest and most organized attack on human freedom in nearly a century. Yes, voices have been censored in ways once unthinkable in the West. Sure, companies have worked hand in glove with governments to intimidate, punish, and mock dissenters. It's true that part of the reason for the success of Wu flu totalitarianism is that a large portion of the population actually clamored for governments to strip them of their rights and dominate their lives in a bargain for personal survival as short-sighted as any ever made with the devil. Now, what's sometimes overlooked, however, is that no system created by humans is capable of protecting freedom without constant pushback from the humans or the people whose freedom is at stake. Even people still in possession of some lingering virtue find it difficult to sustain a sense of right and wrong in the halls of government. Political bureaucracy, by its nature, drains morality from its workforce. Human life is reduced to just numbers. 
But J.B. Shirk says every human life matters. The problem is that government work teaches the opposite lesson. Life is just a numbers game. Consider a small-town mayor in rural America. Far from the swamp in D.C., that official is still forced to make decisions that statistically will lead to someone's death. Perhaps the choice of how to spend limited local tax dollars is between adding a traffic light and celebrating the harvest in the public square. So choosing the latter may one day lead to an unnecessary automobile death, while choosing the former may diminish the mayor's re-election hopes. Government actors learn quickly that small decisions have unintended life-or-death consequences. Once human life is seen as nothing more than a number, though, most political actors find it easier to bury their consciences beneath statistics. What kind of a monster would trap people in their homes, close their churches, and deprive them of any means of making a living? Well, for some of those monsters, case totals and transmission rates outweighed the reason, rationality, or restraint required to protect human rights during a potential emergency. Treating humans as numbers justified trampling on the Constitution and Bill of Rights. And the result of that short-sightedness has been devastating. Then there's the conspiracy of silence. Imagine a serial murder preying on a community. Both the mayor and chief of police are determined to protect their jurisdiction. Officers arrest a suspect who seems guilty. A jury convicts and the murders stop. Then, years later, it's discovered by an investigator that a piece of evidence was illegally planted on the suspect and that the man in prison may not be guilty. What happens? Well, for moral people, the answer is simple. You bring up evidence of impropriety, right up, you bring it forward to ensure that justice is done. However, in practice, such a disclosure would end up damaging both the police force and the civilian political authorities, as well as weaken the public's sense of safety. So too often, a conspiracy of silence develops where the very people vested with the power to punish crimes end up becoming after-the-fact accessories to those crimes in a type of wicked feedback loop. Good intentions are protected with silence even after they've proven to have caused tremendous harm. Now think of everyone in the U.S. government who must have known that the emergency use vaccines developed to combat the China virus would injure or kill a percentage of those treated, yet chose not to inform the public. Think of all the doctors denying simple therapeutics to patients. Think of all the hospitals fraudulently listing unrelated causes of death as from COVID instead of with COVID in order to recoup higher payouts from the federal government. Think of all the medical journals that have censored research contradicting the official COVID narrative. And again, he's not pulling these examples out of thin air. He's backing them up with links that will show you what he's talking about. J.B. Shirk says any one of these institutional guardians would have benefited the public by providing greater transparency, but they chose instead to protect the reputations of government actors, medical luminaries, even science itself, by staying silent. So when the ends justify the means, and ethics are supplanted with good intentions, unfathomably large numbers of people can conspire to commit crimes against humanity without ever having to say a word. Now, there's more to this article. We're going to come back to it here in just a few moments, but I'll remind you, I have a link to this in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. I don't expect you to agree with all of this. I understand if some of this is possibly pushing buttons or at least pushing you up against the, uh, you know, the boundaries of your moral and your mental universe. 
My goal isn't to make you mad. It's not to uh, prove how smart I am because I found this article and shared it with you. I just want to introduce to you some of the some of the ideas that are out there that I think accurately reflect the reality of what we're facing. I think this is one. Ultimately, you get to decide, though, whether it is or not. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I've been sharing an article here from J.B. Shirk from AmericanThinker.com. After COVID-1984, never again. And I, I don't know if there's a way I can really convey how righteously ticked off I have been at times over the last couple of years. Watching people in authority abuse that authority and, and cling to anything that will further their power not realizing how much, or not uh, not acknowledging, I should say, how much damage their policies were doing. And right now there's a big scramble on the part of a lot of those people who are making those decisions to try to get ahead of the narrative. Well, you know, uh, I always said, you know, we shouldn't force people to do this kind of stuff as they're looking around to see if anybody's, you know, going to call them on it. That's pretty cowardly. And it's not like there haven't been plenty of voices speaking up, you know, every step of the way. How do I know? Because I'm one of them. I'm one of many voices that have spoken up. And all those things that were dismissed as, well, that's just kooky, conspiracy theory, and, you know, only a nut job would ever believe that. How many of those things turned out to hold water? Maybe masks aren't all that when it comes to protecting people. Maybe these vaccines are are being rushed and there are some unintended consequences that should be considered first. Maybe government shouldn't be telling who's essential and who isn't essential. Maybe they shouldn't be borrowing trillions of dollars and sending it out like they're dropping it from a helicopter over the, the masses. Yeah, there have been plenty of voices that have warned about this. So why again? Why is it that that the people in power have have fallen prey to to the idea that but we had to do something and uh, you know even if it was the worst thing at least we were doing something? The last point that J B Shirk makes in his article is there's the allure of propaganda. The first lesson he says is that that politicians learn is slogans work. Unfortunately, this lesson teaches them that propaganda is more important than objective truth. Repetition of certain selected words becomes more valuable than complex nuance. Successful repetition of lies proves that some people are more willing to be led astray. Routinely successful manipulation of a population eventually convinces political actors that people are nothing but sheep to be controlled. People become things not worthy of individual respect. And when that happens, propaganda flows from the government without remorse. Those with power justify these deceits as noble lies. Well, when one noble lie is followed by another and another, nobody even asks what is right or wrong. Instead, the question is asked whether those lies will succeed in obtaining public compliance. I don't know why, but that makes me think about Dr. Fauci for some reason. Anyway, back to the article. Or whether those with power today will retain power tomorrow. Or whether the policies of COVID-1984 further the great reset goals of global government. Memes and sound bites replace concern for truth. 
and the end effect is rampant nihilism among those with power. Human life becomes insignificant next to the self-interest of government actors. The natural rights and liberties of any individual become undermined and forgotten. And those who choose to defy regime-enforcing propaganda become domestic enemies. So J.B. Shirk says what two years of COVID-1984 should have taught people by now is that bureaucracies can never be trusted to police themselves for our protection. When the powerful treat the powerless as meaningless statistics to be manipulated and kept in the dark, then it's up to the powerless to, to determine how much tyranny they're willing to endure before finally deciding they've had enough. I mean, it all comes back to the question of consent. That's something that you and I <clears throat> need, to, need to have absolutely crystal clear in our minds. Is at what point we should withdraw our consent. That really strikes fear into the heart of many politicians because withdrawing that consent doesn't just mean I'm not going to vote for you. It, it means I'm not going to obey you. You know, when enough people show up, for instance, not wearing a mask in a place where there's mask mandates, what are they going to do? They're going to arrest everybody? They can't. I don't know what your line in the sand is, but I suggest that uh, it's something you should understand very clearly. I thought I knew what my line in the sand was, and the harder people pushed, the more my line in the sand came to resemble a, you know, an entrenchment. <laughs> it's, it's fortified, man. That line ain't moving. Anyhow, moving on. I want to share something with you from Kent McManigle. I love Kent's ability to get to the heart of the matter. And his recent essay on how modern life isn't a gift from government does such a great job. This is such a succinct reminder not to let politicians try to convince you otherwise. Kent McManigle says the conveniences of the modern world are all around us all the time, but I don't think I'll ever take them for granted. He says one of my grandmothers grew up in this area, I believe he lives in New Mexico, during the Dust Bowl days. Her big family was crowded into a two-room, dirt-floored shack without indoor plumbing or electricity. They traveled by horse-drawn wagon. Their water was dipped from a cistern. They didn't even have a windmill. They picked cotton by hand, dragging the heavy sacks behind them. She grew up basically living the same life as someone born in this region a hundred years earlier could have lived. Now, the Great Depression didn't even affect her family. At least it never figured into any of the stories she told about growing up. He says, when I was a kid, the old shack was still standing, and I visited, visited it with her a couple of times. Now, their life wasn't easy, but it was good enough. So maybe it's understandable that I can still marvel at things like indoor plumbing with running water and flush toilets and electricity. It's not as though I've ever had to live without those things. But he says, I realize how few of the people who have ever been alive had them. Now, that's a sobering thought. If you're feeling poor me, man, I could only get one of my five cars to start today. <laughs> you know, hey, that's a that's a first world problem right there. You won the lottery simply being born, you know, in an English speaking country for starters, let alone being born in the U.S. Ken McManigal says anything that's been around such a short time can go away easier than you suppose. There's little chance they'll go away in our lifetime, but he says over the long term, the chances are fairly high. If something happens, these modern conveniences go away, 
the radical socialists who use the environment as their excuse would quick, quickly realize how bad this would be for the environment. But he says, truthfully, I think they already know. They just don't care as long as it kills off most humans. Now, Kent McManigal says, I'm not content to be dependent on modern conveniences. I enjoy making fire without lighters or matches, but the ability to make fire with primitive methods makes me value the ease of using a lighter even more highly. It's the same with every skill. And he says, I'm grateful to all the researchers, experimenters, and workers who've given us the good things of the modern world. Some others would also like credit. But here's the key. Government would like you to believe it brought about this modern world's peace, prosperity, and safety. Yet the truth is, when these things are the norm, it's usually in spite of political government, not because of it. So appreciate the heroes and not the freeloaders. He's got a good point here. Most of the things that you and I enjoy, the things that make our lives better, did not come about because some benevolent politician thought, you know, if I could just harness enough tax money and enough effort on the part of this army of bureaucrats, why we could make people's lives so much better. I know they want to take credit. I mean, right? They, they want us to believe the sun would not rise this morning if it weren't for the benevolent and steady leadership of our President Joe Biden. Now, you and I probably know better. I'm still a big fan of the idea of agorism, the idea of reducing your governmental footprint. Ideally, I would love to see the point come where, you know, my contact with the federal government particularly only happens when I choose to walk into a post office and drop a letter in this slot. Other than that, I'd pretty much just like to be left alone to, to sort out my own way and my own pursuit of happiness. I know, does that, does that sound like extremist rhetoric? That sound like, you know, something a really crazy person would say? What? You're rejecting the blessings of the political class? How could you do this, citizen? What's wrong with you? Well, what's wrong with me is... Uh, my pronouns are currently awake and concerned. <laughs> That's what's wrong with me. I see the direction that we are being taken. I see the, the, the pleas for government to be in charge of ever more areas of our lives and to provide oversight and direction, which always comes in the form of some kind of mandate or enforcement. And I'm just not down with it. Now, I'll concede there are some aspects of civil government that can be a blessing when they are limited to their proper role of guaranteeing people's rights, seeing that justice prevails, making people whole after they have been victimized, measurably victimized. But a lot of it today just comes down to, well, some bureaucrat says this, so I guess you have to do it. We can live very comfortably with a lot less government than we currently live with. We just have to be in the habit of being problem solvers. But you'd be surprised how many problems can be solved by people who are willing to you know, voluntarily cooperate. And that's not such a hard thing to achieve. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to give a quick shout-out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. Her office is located at 619 South Bluff Street. If you want to call her, you can call 435-703-4522. 
Now, there are a lot of people who have been uh, fleeing from various parts of the country and coming to various uh, red states. Utah is one of the big ones. I think it's in the top 10 or close to it of uh, most traveled to states or most uh, most moved to states. I mean, it's it's crazy. And I've seen similar things happening here in Idaho, but specifically for my listeners in Utah, if you find yourself looking for a home mortgage, you need to talk to Heather Turner and her team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Her NMLS ID is 715386. Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. Heather has the experience and the know-how and the clout to get you the loan you need and to get it quickly, which in a very competitive real estate market, well, that really matters. You'll also find a link to her email in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. So I've, I've been beating the drum a little bit about January 6th, mainly because we just went past the first anniversary of it. And, of course, it's a cow that's still being milked for all the outrage they can get out of it by members of the political class. And I want to make really clear, you do not have to be any type of supporter of the January 6th protesters, including those who let themselves into the Capitol, to be appalled at how the official explanation of what happened just isn't adding up. I've got a great article here from John Green about the January 6th narrative is starting to unravel. And I beat this drum simply because it has been the narrative has been weaponized and is being used as a way to paint patriotic Americans like you and me, some many of whom were not even anywhere near Washington, D.C., but we are being painted as domestic enemies domestic terrorists, extremists that are a threat to our democracy. It's important that somebody speak out against this this propaganda. Now, John Green says, the Democrats and propaganda ministry have tried to portray the events of January 6th as the greatest assault on democracy in, like, forever. But it seems that the narrative is starting to unravel. The unraveling began when many people began to suspect the whole thing was a setup and started looking into it. And it wasn't law enforcement or mainstream media journalists investigating. They could be controlled. It was amateur citizen investigators using the power of the Internet. Ah, the Internet. Allowing average citizens to cross-reference and collate a limitless sea of information. John Green says our founders would approve. Citizen investigators begin to identify individuals who were clearly involved in inciting the riot on January 6th, but a curious number of them had not been arrested by the FBI, even though their identity was well known. One such individual is Ray Epps. Epps is seen on video urging the crowd to enter the Capitol building. Now, he lives on a, in Arizona on a ranch and hasn't been arrested, and there are numerous others just like him. So the question became unavoidable. Did the federal government have involvement with January 6th? Well, we don't know the answer to that question. And that's a problem for a constitutional republic. John Green says as this curious information began to come to public attention, the FBI cover-up started. First of all, it removed Ray Epps from its most wanted list and released a report stating there was no evidence of a coordinated attack on the Capitol, even though they'd been calling it a coordinated attack for months. Apparently, the Bureau hoped the whole thing would fade into obscurity, but it didn't. Merrick Garland and San Fran Nan, see, wouldn't let it. So the uh, proud head of the the police part of our police state couldn't let it go. Garland was having too much fun playing with his new fully operational Death Star, which has the Orwellian name Department of Justice. 
Garland. Uh, the only thing that's been missing, by the way, is a peoples at the beginning of that name. Unfortunately, Garland has bragged for months about his shock and awe campaign to bring insurrectionists to justice. So the DOJ has had hundreds of citizens under arrest for months for the horrendous crimes of trespassing and taking selfies on Capitol grounds. What are prosecutors supposed to do? Go to the judge and say, oops, our bad. No, that's not the way police states operate. And Merrick Garland isn't the only one pushing the narrative beyond what the evidence supports. Nancy Pelosi's kept the topic in the news as well. She's facing a midterm shellacking, looking down the barrel of a Trump return to politics, and she needs a blunt, a propaganda blunt object with which to beat on Republicans. Her solution was simple, elegant, and stupid. Appoint a committee to investigate something that didn't happen, the greatest assault on our democracy since Pearl Harbor, or was it 9-11? I forget. Add a couple of useful idiot Republicans, preferably of the never-Trump variety. Subpoena every Republican in the known universe and provide creative leaks to the awaiting propaganda ministry. Pelosi, note to self, don't forget to add Adam Schiff to the committee. Voila! A year's worth of negative Trump news cycles. Maybe it could even be stretched to three years, but after a year of investigating an insurrection that the FBI said wasn't an insurrection, the question started to get a bit too inconvenient for San Fran Nan's committee. So she did what masters do. She jerked the leash hard and her twin dogs barked. The committee released a statement defending Ray Epps. (laughs) and the FBI arrested Stuart Rhodes, the leader of Oath Keepers, and a number of his fellow travelers. Now, in August of 2021, the FBI said there was no evidence of a coordinated attack on the Capitol. Now, in January of 2020, the FBI is saying that Stuart Rhodes organized teams to conduct an armed paramilitary operation to prevent congressional certification of the vote. There's just one problem. It never happened. Except for the activities of Ray Epps, who is no longer wanted by the FBI, there was no coordination at all of the mob at the Capitol. Stuart Rhodes was present, but he never entered the Capitol, and like the other Oath Keepers present, he was unarmed. In fact, the only firearms present in the Capitol on that day were those in the possession of the Capitol Police, one of which was used to kill an unarmed protester. Now, the indictment of the Oath Keepers is not about what they did. It's about what they wanted to do, even though they didn't do it. See, crimes of intent are tricky things to prosecute. How can any man know what's in another man's heart and mind? Does the FBI have some evidence of his actual desire, or is Stuart Rhodes automatically guilty of wrongthink because he's patriotic, you know, an anti-government conservative? Maybe the FBI's gotten possession of incriminating emails. It's possible that Rhodes, a Yale-trained lawyer, blasted out his insurrection plans with his Gmail account. Of course, the jury will also need to consider the FBI history of falsifying emails such as it did to get warrants against Carter Page. Maybe the FBI has witnesses that overheard the Oath Keepers' plans. The Bureau is well known for planning informants in organizations suspected of subversion. But whatever witnesses it has had better have more credibility than Andrew McCabe or Peter Stroke or Kevin Kleinsmith or any of the three agents that have been removed from the Whitmer kidnapping witness list. Now, John Green says, I'm not jumping to any conclusions about the Oath Keepers. Whatever evidence the FBI has is going to need very close examination by an army of citizen investigators. And he says, don't underestimate their abilities. It didn't work out so well for Dan, fake but accurate, rather. 
Much to the FBI's consternation, the January 6th investigation hasn't faded, and the amateur investigations continue. And the questions are getting more inconvenient by the nanosecond. Now we have an attorney general and various FBI officials who can do little more than stammer and mutter the words ongoing investigation and stare at the ceiling while being questioned by Congress. Ongoing investigation is starting to feel like the new pleading the fifth. Now, John Green says after the Republicans win the midterm elections, they should keep the January 6th, 6th committee in place, but under new management. San Fran Nan's committee set a few precedents that should be very useful. The minority party has no rights. Committee members are subject to the approval of the Speaker of the House. Executive privilege is a thing of the past. Any member of the opposing party is also fair game. Republicans should also subpoena Merrick Garland, Christopher Ray, and Nancy Pelosi. John Green says, I'm dying to see how Granny Boxwine does under questioning from Ted Cruz. Watching Cackles Harris laugh nervously at every question should just about end her political future, if she hasn't already ended it herself. Heck, he says they should even subpoena the electronic devices of Shifty Shift and Bang Bang the Fang Fang Swalwell. I'm sure they have some interesting texts and emails about January 6th as well. Dang. (laughs) John Green does not hold back on this. I don't know. For sure. You know what? I, I haven't handled the evidence. Neither of you. I mean, we we know what comes to us from various sources, but I do know that the official version really doesn't add up. And the fact that officials who are asked very pointed questions like what kind of involvement was there by federal agencies in the events of January 6th? You know, if, if the truth was on the side of the government and they could clearly say, look, there was none. Let it go. That would be one thing. But all this hemming and hawing, and well, I can't comment on that. I cannot comment on that. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't seem to lend itself towards, well, I think they're, they're really being honest. It looks more like they have something to hide. This is The Brian Hyde Show.